Hey, Jay, there's been more than one iteration of Excalibur, right? Sure, Miles. I mean, hell, the team composition changes pretty substantially, even just over the first series. So was new Excalibur totally different? Nah, there were a few returning members. Captain Britain, Pete Wisdom. Who else was on the team? There was Dazzler. Cool. Juggernaut. Huh. Okay, that's surprising, but I guess he's been a hero a few times. Sage. Oh, and Nocturne. Okay, I recognize Sage, but who's Nocturne? She's from Earth-2182. What's her deal? Eh, pretty good range of psionic abilities, plus energy bolts. Oh, and she's blue and sticks to walls. Blue and sticks to... Is she Earth-2182's Nightcrawler? Um, close. She's actually his kid. Okay. With the Scarlet Witch. What?! Jay Edidin. And I'm Miles Stokes. And we are here to explain the X-Men. Because it's about time someone did. Welcome to episode 143 of Jay and Miles Explain the X-Men, where we walk you through the ins, the outs, and the retcons of comics' greatest superhero soap opera. And welcome to, at long last, the end of the cross-time caper. Thank God. So the cross-time caper, I mean, I remember we both thought very, very fondly of it. Back in the day. Back in the day, back in the before times. I mean, to be fair, it went on for how long in real time when it was coming out? Six months? A year? Forever? Well, I mean, the books were coming out a little more than every month, I believe, for at least part of it. But it was 13 issues, one of which was a fill-in, but still 12 chapters. And at this point, I think it ends with number 24, so that is fully half of the run of the entire series. And while we staunchly defended it at first... Man, by the time we got to the end of the issues we're covering today, we were more than ready for it to be over. It is a storyline that starts out scintillating and fun and charming and silly, and then just sort of fizzles on and on and on. You know, that being said, even in the weakest chapters, I gotta say there's a lot of fun stuff to be found. And while Alan Davis doesn't do all of it, which I think honestly is part of the problem— the stuff he does do is still amazing. I mean, everything that man touches turns to swoopy-haired gold. Yeah, yeah, no, Alan Davis is delightful. I do have to say, with this episode, I feel like we're kind of setting ourselves up for a fall. Because we've got very, very scattered material, and we are recording this immediately on the heels of 142. Um, we're double recording this week. We'll have recorded this two weeks out instead of one. And I don't know about you, but I am already kind of running on pure momentum at this point. Oh, be strong, be strong. We just have to keep going, and eventually Saturnine will send us home. And then we'll just be back to Inferno again? But yeah, spoiler, guys. We decided to just start Inferno over, so we're going to do that What do you the mean, start it over? It never really ended. <laughs> we didn't mention Inferno once in 142, did we? I mean, we mentioned some stuff with Madeline Pryor, so that kind of counts. Well, she was around before Inferno, sort of, technically. Yeah, well, regardless. I guess that was technically all the lead-up to Inferno. <laughs> Everything was. But this is the aftermath of Inferno still. And, so there. And will be forever. But yeah, so we're here. We're going to be talking about Excalibur number 21 through 24 today, the last four chapters of the Crosstime Caper, and also the last of Alan Davis's work on the book for quite a long time. So it's been a while since we've checked in with Excalibur. Let's do a quick recap of who's on the team, what they've been up to, and what exactly this cross-time caper is all about. So Excalibur's lineup remains pretty much the same. We have Captain Britain, Megan, Nightcrawler, Shadowcat, and Phoenix, that being Rachel Summers, of course, not Jean Grey. They are joined by scientist Alistair Stewart, small purple dragon Lockheed, small metallic dimension-hopping head Widget, and a large nameless purple dragon who powers their Nazi train. Yeah, they got a Nazi train from an alternate Nazi universe, and they've been going through time and space with it. 
cross time, as it turns out, does not mean traveling through time. It means traveling to different parallel universes, all of which are in the same time. Huh. You know, I mean, it sounds cool that way. It totally works out. Now, all of the team is there except for Kitty. Kitty is back on Earth 616. She was sent back in a fight with the reality warping Jamie Braddock. That's the older brother of Captain Britain, Brian Braddock, and also of Psylocke, Betsy Braddock. And she and the rest of the team do not know yet whether each other are alive. She has now lost two teams. We've also suffered perhaps an even more dire loss. As Miles mentioned in the intro, Alan Davis is no longer the series artist, or at least not the main one. He'll pop back up sometimes, but I miss him so much. That's, you know, we talk about this when we're reviewing, I think, especially All New Wolverine lately on the video reviews. But the problem with taking over a book from Alan Davis is that you're taking over a book from Alan Davis. No matter who you are, no matter how good you are, you're not going to hold up. And that's not just in terms of quality of art, either. Part of it for me is that Chris Claremont and Alan Davis are a beautiful, well-oiled machine. Claremont's words and Davis's images just complement each other better than almost any other comics team in superhero history, honestly. Yeah, and that synergy is pretty critical to making any story as long and disjointed as the cross-time caper work. You know, the actual story at this point is pretty silly, and it is kind of scattered. It's super scattered. And I think that Claremont had gotten really heavily reliant on Davis's ability to pull that stuff together, to keep momentum going, and to make even sort of wacky out there and not particularly well-fleshed-out concepts really engaging and enjoyable. Like, the amount of personality, the amount of storytelling that was basically really in the art, in the Davis parts of the cross-time caper, can't really be overestimated. And it's not that it's bad here. It's just that there's no other artist who can really carry Excalibur the way that Davis can. Now, that being said, we do get A, some Alan Davis art in the issues we'll be talking about, but B, some really interesting, cool concepts. I mean, the cross-time caper goes on forever, yes, but most of the worlds that Excalibur goes to, they all have something interesting and novel to take away from them. Yeah, the cross-time caper as we mentioned, it's kind of outstayed its welcome at this point. But even when it's a mess, it's a consistently interesting mess. So with that, let's dive into Excalibur 21 and meet Crusader X and also our new artist, Chris Wozniak. So Chris Wozniak, for me, he is kind of one of the definitive Excalibur artists simply because he did a whole bunch of it. But that said, his style is definitely not nearly as engaging as Alan Davis's. Yeah, he's not a bad artist, but he's not a good fit for this. I mean, he doesn't really have Davis's sense of physical comedy, and he really doesn't have his expressiveness. Well, what he does have is a couple of new characters to design, one of whom, like you mentioned, is Crusader X, who is, in fact, the Captain Britain of Earth 2122, where we're going to be spending a couple of issues. So tell us about Crusader X. What is this dude's deal? Is he, in fact, Crusader, or does he have a large sword? Is he fighting to retake the Holy Land. In fact, none of those things. Crusader X exists in an Earth where the United States lost the Revolutionary War, so England kind of runs everything. Instead of being, you know, an upstanding British aristocrat like the Brian Braddock we know, he is in fact a Native American who nonetheless is the kind of mascot slash hero slash protector of Britain. He mentions at one point that even though everyone reveres him as he flies through the sky, that if they knew who he really was under the mask, none of them would want to even be around him. We've also got alternate versions of a handful of other supporting characters who we've seen around. We have Alistair Stewart, in this case Brigadier Alistair Stewart, and uh, scientist Alice Hen Stewart, that's reversed from their 616 identities, but otherwise pretty much the same. And Di Thomas, who apparently in every universe is a Scotland Yard inspector who just hates superheroes. Yup. And they're all trying to figure out what the hell's going on because they have discovered 
a Nazi train. Specifically, they've discovered Excalibur's Nazi train, which has crash-landed into this reality now. And they're trying to piece together the nature and purpose of this train from its contents, which are cataloged and include... Leather bodysuit, Carmen Miranda costume, funny animal suit, a lovely frock that some brute slashed down to knee length, plus some designs I can't figure out and wouldn't dare to try on. Excalibur has definitely been here. What I really enjoy is all the stuff listed. Those were all different costumes that Kitty wore in different scenes from the Crosstime Caper over like the last eight issues of it. Well, I think many of them were also from the one specific scene where they were carrying a tied up Alistair Stewart in his underwear running toward the train. (laughs) And so what they also find is a picture of Nightcrawler, who it turns out in this reality is one of Imperial Prussia's top agents. Now, this Captain Britain, or sorry, Crusader X has tracking powers. He is, incidentally, a member of the X-Men. They're somewhat different in this universe, but that, to me, at least implies heavily that he's a mutant. This might be his mutant power because it's not part of the Captain Britain power set that we've seen so far. Or it could just be a somewhat uncomfortable trope since he's Native American. That's also a possibility we should probably not dismiss. Hey, it could be both. (laughs) Why not both? So he tracks down Kurt, and meanwhile, we get a glimpse of the Xavier School which in this world is near London instead of New York. Again, this is a world where England won the American Revolution. And so everything important that we associate with the U.S. is basically in the U.K. now. Jean Grey is headed back to the school. And we find that this world does have a few things, unfortunately, in common with 616. Jason Wingard greets her at the door and everything goes 1800s. Now, as you may remember, Jason Wingard is mastermind, and he was the dude who used a bunch of illusion powers back in the Dark Phoenix saga to turn Phoenix into Dark Phoenix, to kind of mess with her mind and make her his devoted servant. And to turn Jean Grey into the Black Queen of the Hellfire Club. Here he turns her into the Shadow Queen, which as far as I can tell is basically the same as the Black Queen, but with more fishnet. She manages to flare the Phoenix Raptor because she's still got Phoenix associations in this world, and take him out, also transforms her outfit into this weird, like, red, leathery, cut-down-to-the-waist sort of thing. It's actually really Lady Deathstrike, and it's kind of a cool costume. It's red leather pants and what appears to just be a pretty snazzy leather jacket with nothing under it, just unzipped really far. It's a costume, actually, that wouldn't look out of place on Rachel Summers. And in fact, across this reality somewhere, Rachel Summers is now herself wearing it, having flared up the phoenix herself. And that's something I really enjoy about cross-time stuff, is you get character relationships that you really wouldn't otherwise. I mean, Rachel Summers has never had the Phoenix Force in the same reality as Jean Grey, who herself had it. In Earth-616, Jean Grey is no longer associated with the Phoenix, only Rachel is. So seeing that, you know, her mother flares the Phoenix and gets a weird outfit, and Rachel at the same time does, that's kind of cool. Meanwhile, in the Hellfire Club, also situated in London, again, everything cool is there, we can just take that as red, the Shadow King turns out to be the real power behind the Lord's Cardinal. He's got Emma Frost, the 616 White Queen, on a leash at his feet alongside Celine, and Emma has just died due to psychic feedback from the Phoenix Flare. Mastermind is pretty sheepish, you know, he's come to check in with his master, the Shadow King, Amal Farouk, who incidentally is being built up as the big bad over an Uncanny X-Men. Ironically, that's pretty much just gonna fizzle. Well, the thing is, it won't exactly, because the Muir Isle saga is coming up, that's gonna be a great big crossover, and the Shadow King's absolutely the power behind all of that. However, Chris Claremont's original plan was to not have that be the end of the Shadow King's, you know, mastermindy villainy kind of stuff. Originally, in Uncanny X-Men number 300, the Shadow King was going to be the big villain that ended up killing Professor Xavier and requiring all the different X-teams to team up to defeat him. So, I kind of want to talk about the Shadow King because he is a villain who has never really appealed to me. 
he's subtle in ways that often don't work in superhero comics. And he's just not all that interesting. Yeah, I think I would agree. I mean, you know, he's got historical connection to many of the X-Men, including, as we find out, Rachel Summers, including Storm, including, most importantly, Professor Xavier. But at the same time, like, he's just not nuanced the way, say, Magneto or even Apocalypse and Sinister are. He's just super evil, and that's kind of his whole deal. In a way, he reminds me of Celine, you know, a character that Chris Claremont clearly had a lot of affection for and kept bringing back. And just never really clicked for me. I mean, ultimately, I would say Selene is more nuanced than the Shadow King. It's hard to be less nuanced than the Shadow King, it's true. But regardless, there's some interesting continuity stuff here that we're going to get to involving him, which, while it didn't end up going anywhere, could have, and that's kind of cool. In this case, we learn that the Shadow King is having Mastermind, previously with the support of the now-deceased Emma Frost, infiltrate Jean's mind, turn her into a pawn, and he's doing this at the request, having been hired to do so, by Iron Man, by Tony Stark. Right, because like we mentioned, in this reality, the United States lost the Revolutionary War. And the Avengers are the Sons of Liberty. They're a a revolutionary group. So the plan, and it's actually a pretty clever plan, is to have Jean Grey use her psychic powers, now that she's controlled by the Shadow King, to infiltrate this great big world conference thing that's going to happen, where all the world's leaders are going to be, you know, hobnobbing and doing leadery things, at which point Iron Man will be able to get in past security and basically kill everyone and strike this great blow for American freedom. This Iron Man is kind of a jerk. Well, this Iron Man is a you know, seventh or so generation revolutionary who at this point feels that an at-all-costs approach is justified. He's wrong, but he's not just petty. Back at the Xavier School, Jean is blissfully unaware of this plan. She is petting and playing with Wolfsbane in wolf form as a mulleted cannonball attempts to ambush her as part of his training, and she deflects him with no trouble, stopping to check if he's okay, to which he responds, I'm uh, pretty nigh invulnerable when I'm blast. Which I think might actually be as close as we come to the traditional, if apocryphal, phrasing until um, Al Ewing made it canon this past year. (laughs) That may be true. And so we see a little bit of the school the way it is in this reality, in Earth-2122, Banshee is actually a professor here, which is a nice little bit of accidental foreshadowing of Generation X when he's the co-headmaster of the school in that book. And it's just kind of idyllic. I mean, we have the X-Men and X-Factor characters all working together. We have the new mutants, you know, working closely with them. And this is an era where none of that's true, where everybody's scattered and very few people have, you know, that many allies to depend on. So it's an alternate universe, and that means we can assume it's all going to go to hell. But for this very moment, it's nice. Well, just for a moment, because as Jean heads in to say hello to the Professor and Mara, she suddenly turns into the Shadow Queen with the Shadow King silhouette in the background and Xavier and Mara in a pool of blood at her feet. Elsewhere, Rachel tries to rush off to help her, but just then Excalibur is set upon by Crusader X, who is there to chase down the Prussian spy Kurt Wagner. Rachel is incapacitated by all the weird stuff going on with Jean Grey, so she flies the hell away because the Shadow King is doing horrible, horrible psychic stuff to her mom in this universe. Yeah, the Shadow King has chased down and psychically claimed Jean. We get a really graphic image of his clawed hand impaling her head. And I mean, we talk about how Chris Wozniak isn't as good of an artist as Alan Davis, and that's true, but again, nobody is. I gotta say, though, some of this stuff, he really, really sells. I mean, just the impact of how terrifying the Shadow King is as he does these awful things, like, I really buy it. Also, that's a lot of blood coming out of Jean's face. I don't feel good about that. Rachel finds Jean dying on a country lane. Uh, Jean says that if Rachel tries to save her, that'll just give the Shadow King control over Rachel, too, that, you know, Rachel's attention is the only thing holding the Shadow King at bay, and asks Rachel basically to kill her. 
And Rachel's horrified because, I mean, in every universe she goes to, she never has a chance to just have a mother. No, it's not fair. Why do I always have to lose you? Mom, please. Mom! Not your mom. Wish I was. Didn't they have roughly this exchange in at least one other timeline? It's possible. I mean, this is like a recurring tragedy. You know, Rachel, when she first comes to Earth-616, at that point, Jean Grey, as far as she knows, is dead. So, like, that's kind of the precedent that's set. And then when Jean comes back, she doesn't feel comfortable letting her know who she really is at first. And every alternate universe they go to, Jean Grey keeps dying. It sucks a lot to be Rachel Summers in a whole lot of ways. So she's furious. I mean, she flares up the Phoenix Force and vows revenge on the Hellfire Club, which, you know, can't say I fully blame her. It is kind of what she does best aside from phoenixing around. She is pretty into vowing revenge. I mean, you know, there was that one time she tried to murder Celine and Wolverine stabbed her instead. And in fact, we'll be coming back to that very shortly. But in the meantime... We've got Archangel. Yeah, specifically, we have a gender-swapped version of Archangel. Dude, that Walter Simonson Archangel's design looks so cool on a lady. It really does. So cool. And one of the things I enjoy is that they didn't do what a lot of comics artists would have, which would be to, like, you know, make it a girly version or sexify it. It is exactly Walter Simonson's Archangel design, just on a female body. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's very, very, very cool-looking. And Archangel is here to escort Crusader X back to the Xavier School, where terrible things have been afoot. They are met there by the head of security, a character who has just made his on-page debut two months previously in New Mutants, the one and only Cable. And I really like that, you know, in this world where everybody is allied, where all the X-Men are working together, I mean, of course, even this brand new character would be part of it. And if you're going to have a head of security, then probably Cable's a good option, I gotta admit. Cable and Archangel do not get along, and it is implied that they have some kind of history, although whether it is romantic or otherwise is not really explored. I mean, I do feel like if Cable was going to hook up with somebody in the X-Men, it probably would be the person covered in blades. He's got some associations going on there, you know? Yeah, it's a good complimentary set of accessories. Oh man, their sex would make so many clanging noises, there'd just be sparks everywhere from the metal scraping against the metal. Don't bring a knife to gun sex. <laughs> Perfect. But anyway, Crusader X is quickly briefed on what's going on, which is that there was a big-ass psychic shockwave that got past all of the mansion's defenses. It hit all the psychics really hard, especially Professor Xavier, but damn near took everybody out. And so they're all kind of freaked out because this was supposed to be an impregnable fortress of mutant awesomeness, and uh, not so much, it turns out. And as Crusader X, you know, checks in on the wounded and stuff like that, he takes off his helmet, and we see that, yeah, he doesn't look like our Brian Braddock. He's got long, straight black hair tied back with a leather thong. I mean, he clearly is supposed to be a Native American character, which makes it kind of suck that his features are almost identical to Brian's. Well, and he's colored the same way. He just looks like a white dude with long, dark hair. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's unfortunate, because if you're going to have a really neat concept, you know, a Native American Captain Britain in a world where America's lost the Revolutionary War, go with it, you know? Actually have the visuals match the concept. It does not help that Wozniak draws Brian Braddock basically to look exactly like Colossus. So when he's got black hair, there is just a momentary, is that Peter Respi? No. Well, and especially, but, kinda, but no. Especially because Colossus actually does have a ponytail in this era because he's off being an artist in Soho, remember? Oh, yeah, he totally does. He yeah. rocks it, too. He totally rocks it. So while all the X-Men of Earth-2122 try to figure out what the hell to do, Crusader X's wife heads to work on the way to which she's assaulted by racist hoodlums yelling at her for having a non-white husband because they're jerks. And you'd kind of expect Crusader X's wife to be a version of a woman we've seen him romantically involved with before. There are a few standbys that he pretty much always goes back to, Megan, Courtney, Ross, etc. Here, however, it appears to be Kitty Pride. 
And when the Excalibur of our world, of Earth-616, shows up to save her, that's exactly what they think. And I do really enjoy that here Captain Britain, like, crumples up the awesomely graffitied van of the racist hoodlums into basically a metal ball and just says, what, essentially? It turns out that Crusader X's wife is not Kitty. She is, in fact, a brunette Courtney Ross. We know Courtney used to dye her hair brown. She did, yeah. But what interests me here is that this is a plotline Chris Claremont keeps coming back to. The idea of all these parallels or kinship or whatever with Courtney Ross and Kitty Pride. I mean, we know that Courtney Ross is an alternate universe version of Saturnine and Satire 9. And in fact, that in Earth 616, she's been secretly replaced by the dictator Satire 9. More on that soon. But Claremont keeps teasing at, you know, that maybe Kitty Pride will become Courtney Ross, or maybe she sort of is Courtney Ross. And unfortunately, there's never a full resolution to that plot line, and it just, it fascinates me. I really wonder what he was going for there. They share a distinctive Ellen Davis hair swoop, if nothing else. <laughs> there is that, but you know, who doesn't? Meanwhile, Earth-2122's Weird Happenings organization is busy interrogating Nightcrawler. He is the Prussian spy they have been after, except, of course, that he's not. He's 616 Nightcrawler, and he doesn't know what the hell is going on. And he's trying to tell them as much, and in fact, he's getting some backup from... Alison Stewart, who in this world is herself a scientist. In a world of beings like Crusader X, why is it so hard to accept the possibility of parallel dimensions, alternate realities, die, and travel between them? Read Quiet Pools, man. The work of Professor Cube McDowell. So I looked it up, and The Quiet Pools by this Cube McDowell guy, that's actually a science fiction novel that came out, I believe, right around the same month that this issue did. So once again, A... Chris Claremont is totally up on the latest pop culture, which has always been a thing for him. And B, apparently a science fiction novelist from our world, got a total upgrade in Earth 2122 to become a full-on, like, theoretical physicist-scientist dude. Alas, Alison is unable to convince Di Thomas, and uh, he and his heavy decide that it is time for a more violent interrogation. I like that his heavy's a lady. His heavy's a lady named Jenna, and she beats the hell out of Nightcrawler. And while I'm not in favor of beating the hell out of Nightcrawler, you know, it's nice and progressive to see a woman be the one to do it. Now, Kurt has another plan. He sees the potential for a different way out. He sees a possible ally in Alice End, and so he turns up his charm to Eleven. On my world, I always saw you in uniform. It never entered my head to think of the woman who wore it. More fool I. Ugh, does that line ever actually work? I mean, it kind of seems to work here. Alisand is pretty smitten. Now, that could be because he's, you know, smooth, or it could be because she's really excited by a person from a parallel dimension. But either way, you know, she seems intrigued. I'd like to think that she is just playing him because she wants to, you know, get in on the science angle. Because, again, the I never really thought of you as a woman beneath the uniform is just one of those <laughs> i mean i think it's kind of romantic but you know i'm biased because i love nightcrawler a lot i guess for me it implies that those things are diametrically opposed well i mean you know i get it like he mainly saw her as a role rather than an actual person that he could be attracted to i, I get what he's trying to say i never considered objectifying you <laughs> well now he's considering exactly that and anyway, he teleports the both of them out because they didn't realize that Nightcrawler, whether, you know, Prussian spy or Kurt Wagner from 616, had mutant powers. But unfortunately, as he tries to escape, Captain Britain crashes into a wall, stuff starts breaking everywhere, and he has to do like an almost Prince of Persia-esque jumping from rock to rock, carrying the smitten or possibly not Alison Stewart with him. It's kind of awesome. Okay, okay, dude, imagine a skin for Sands of Time where the prince is just Nightcrawler and otherwise the game is identical. 
I mean, I would play that even more because it's an amazing game. And with Nightcrawler, it would be even more amazing. Yes, I it fully would be approve. perfect. <laughs> it would be so good. All right, Ubisoft, if you're listening, I know you like re-releasing games. So just, you know, tweak it a little. It wouldn't be hard. Yeah, uh, we know a guy at Marvel. You can probably get the license. I mean, the prince, Maybe? the prince basically has the same hair as X-Men Evolution Nightcrawler anyway, so it wouldn't even be challenging. Oh my god, now I'm imagining the Prince's X-Men Evolution Nightcrawler and it's becoming a very different game. Okay, yeah, that would be kind of different, it's true. Adorable, though. But yes, what's going on? The reason Captain Britain crashed into a nearby wall is that Crusader X and Captain Britain are fighting. They are clashing like the red, white, and blue clad titans they are. The reason Captain Britain crashed into a nearby wall, you say, as if he really needs a reason. Sometimes he just does. I mean, sometimes our cat runs into walls. I'm really glad that our cat doesn't have, you know, the power endowed by the Amulet of Right. She didn't choose the Amulet of Right or the Sword of Might. She just, you know, waited to be fed. And I was going to go say anywhere. she just squawked and headbutted Roma a few times and then wandered off. <laughs> she did get that sweet, you know, British flag looking uniform, though, at least. The Amulet of Loud. The Amulet of Loud, yes. And I enjoy what happens here with the dialogue because, you know, so often we have superheroes fight and so often it's a misunderstanding as, in fact, it is here. But at least here we get a sort of justification for why they're not talking about it, as Crusader X says, I dared not slack off even the fraction necessary to talk to him. That would leave me vulnerable to him. Suppose my instincts were wrong, and he proved a deadly foe. It was a risk, with all that was at stake, I couldn't afford. I feel like Crusader X needs to take some lessons from Spider-Man. I mean, he can totally be fighting his hardest and still talking a mile a minute. Yeah, but Spider-Man is more with the leaping and less with the smashing. I suppose You'll that's notice, true. for example, that the primary smashing things guy of Marvel, the Hulk, is relatively laconic. I mean, not these days. These days he's Amadeus Cho and he talks all the time. That's an excellent point. Yep. Speaking of, I read the first issue of the new Hulk book, the one that's about Jennifer Walters after Civil War II. It's actually pretty good. I kind of like it. It's a different take. It's, you know, less lighthearted, but it's pretty rad. I recommend it. Meanwhile, Rachel shows up at the Hellfire Club. She is here to get revenge for her mom from this world, but also for her own world. And this gets interesting because she gives an account of the origins of the Earth 811 dystopia that is at odds with anything that we've seen before and with everything that we'll see after this. On my world, they destroyed the X-Men's mansion, Professor Xavier's school. They murdered Professor X himself took me prisoner. I was only a kid then, one of the new mutants. I barely manifested my psi powers. Lords Cardinal, White Queen, Black King, Black Queen, they figured I'd be easy pickings. No problem at all brainwashing me into their service. I showed them that I was Phoenix in fact as well as name. Weird thing was, they dropped like puppets with cut strings, as if they'd never at all been real. I don't know, maybe they weren't. Because then I found myself against their lord and master, the Shadow King. So this is weird on a couple levels, and it conflicts with some previous and some future stuff we'll learn about Earth 811. So nominally, Rachel's timeline split from the main one with the assassination of Senator Kelly by the Brotherhood of Evil Mutants. That's the event that was prevented in the 616 timeline in the Days of Future Past story. So. Here's what we've known up to this point about Rachel's timeline. We know the Xavier school was destroyed. We know Xavier was killed. In fact, that's one of the first things we see when Rachel shows up. Yeah, we see her with him, in fact, when he dies. And we know that Rachel didn't have the Phoenix Force. She was not Phoenix in that timeline, or at least she wasn't as a kid, because her mom not only had possession of the Phoenix Force, but was Phoenix. 
And so what I'm thinking might be going on there, because she mentioned she barely manifested her psi powers and talks about how she was Phoenix in fact as well as name. Maybe she was referencing the fact that her mom was Phoenix and so she had some of that awesomeness too. It's really unclear. Well, we know from word of God from interviewing Claremont that Rachel is actually the Phoenix Force's kid. Like she is the daughter of the Phoenix Force by, you know, cosmic parthenogenesis. Right. So there's that. So she is fundamentally the Phoenix in ways that she had not been described as at this point. But there's something else in this flashback that makes me think that we're maybe not quite getting an accurate version of the story. And that is that the Shadow King later on in it is going to morph into Mojo. She sees a seamless transition of herself in his control to herself in Mojo's. And that makes me think that these are not her real memories, that what we're seeing is a combination of the memories that got scrambled up in the body shop when she was with Mojo, because we know that a lot of those are gone, and her mind processing the bits of Jean's takeover by the Shadow King that she experienced in this universe, that it's basically her mind scrambling to make memories to make sense of the sudden onset of someone else's feelings and experiences that she got hit with. Yeah, I mean, I get the impression that as far as the Shadow King turning into Mojo in her memory, that's more of a symbolic thing. That is more that everything is getting psychically scrambled and weird. Like, because she does mention that that happens later when she's older. Yeah, but we will later learn a lot about her history and a lot about her early history and her world. And I don't think the Shadow King really comes up much in it. And no, this plot line is basically dropped. And I applaud what Chris Claremont was trying to do. I mean, he's clearly building the Shadow King up as this giant villain across the entire X line. So saying that, oh, actually, the Shadow King was part of what made Earth 811, Days of Future Past, so shitty, that just gives him, you know, another bad thing about him, another way to be intimidating and scary. But the fact that it was just sort of dropped just makes this a weird anomaly. I mean, that being said, it's cool seeing, like, young Rachel Summers in a New Mutants outfit and stuff like that, at least. It also seems peculiar that this never came up when she was going after the Hellfire Club before, because, I mean, she infiltrated the Hellfire Club and went to kill Celine, but none of this came up. None of this was mentioned. Yeah, that was in Uncanny X-Men 189, and her original motivation in that story for killing Celine along with Magma is that Celine had psychically vampired to death this nice guy that had helped Rachel out when she first showed up in Earth-616. Like, it was purely revenge because Celine had done a shitty thing, not that Celine was part of the organization that had literally killed everyone she ever loved. Like, that's the sort of thing you'd think would come up, right? Yeah, and again, it's not going to come up again, and the role that the Shadow King is cast in here is largely, to what extent it survives, going to be given over to Ahab. Exactly, yeah. So that is really fascinating, and thankfully, an editor's note says that we can find out more about it in Excalibur Special Edition number three and four. Unfortunately, that editor's note is a lie. Yeah, the third and fourth special editions um, have nothing to do with that. So Whoops. this is just a fully dropped plot line, and I am fascinated by it. And if we have a chance to talk to Chris Claremont again, I don't know if he would remember this specific thing, but I'd love to know what he wanted to do with it. So did you read the Wayside School books growing up? Uh, sideways Stories from Wayside School? Yeah, totally. Okay, do you remember the 13th floor? Uh, vaguely. The classroom where all the imaginary students are? Oh, right, right, all right. All the students that people have made up? Mm -hmm. So I assume that there is a universe somewhere where all of the lost plot lines and teased events that never get played out go. So, for example, until Kurt Busiek brought him back, that was where Matoxa the Lava Man was. Right, or the mutant wars are just the most important thing going on in that world. Exactly. The mutant wars get fought out in that world. That's the world where Deathbird has been manipulated by Thanos. And <laughs> that is the world where the Shadow King was the main player in Days of Future Past. In basically everything, from what we can tell from what Claremont was trying to set up. Yeah, the 13th floor of the world <laughs> of Wayside School. I love this plan and everything about it. 
alas, that's not what this storyline focuses on, although it focuses on, you know, some other cool stuff. So what happens is that Rachel just walks in and basically psychically submits herself while disguised as Jean Grey, because remember, they were wearing the same thing, to the will of the Shadow King. She is now his pawn, and Tony Stark is quite pleased. So the plan continues. I mean, they head over to that world leader summit thing, and Rachel does indeed psychically whammy all the guards, letting Iron Man in to do his nefarious patriotic deeds. But when he gets in there, it turns out, not so much, she was just faking. And I gotta say, faking against the telepathy of the Shadow King, that's some pretty impressive stuff right there. Dude, she's Phoenix. Yeah, that's true. She's got the awesome fiery bird of winning every time. Yeah, she is the deus in the deus ex machina. She's the deus ex machina ever. I'm pretty sure that's not how Latin works, but I'm gonna allow it. (laughs) Thank you, I appreciate it. Anytime. And so, yeah, she easily takes out Tony Stark, but what I really like here is that as soon as he falls down, he gets right back up with a recording coming out of his armor, which basically says, All right, Shadow King, I knew you would betray me, so I set my armor up so that if I were ever psychically taken out, it would autonomously fight you and take you out too, which is a very Tony Stark thing to do. And the fact that it's happening with a completely different telepath like, kind of makes it even cooler, in my opinion. Yeah, yeah. That's the problem with if I'm ever knocked out emergency measures is that they don't really allow for contingencies sometimes. It's true. They don't allow for things like, you know, a Nazi train full of superheroes coming into your dimension and fucking everything up. I bet Cyclops' contingency plans do. Yeah, probably. Cyclops and Batman. Cyclops of plan B implies we only have 26. (laughs) That's the one. And so, yeah, they are able to foil this nefarious plot to kill all the world leaders for the patriots of the United States. And everything seems to be going pretty well. Although Rachel's a little sad because since the Shadow King escaped and all the hubbub, she can't have her revenge. And that's sad because revenge is one of her favorite things. But you know what's not sad? What? Alan Davis is back to draw the next issue. Yes, Excalibur number 23. Okay, so number 23 and number 24, they're both standalone stories that finish out the cross-time caper, and I don't even know or care whether they're good because Alan Davis is back, and that makes every single panel a goddamn delight. Also, Excalibur 23 has some of my favorite alternate universe characters, my favorite alternate world, and that is the super villainous triumvirate of Kitty Pride, Douglas Ramsey, and Ilyana Rasputin. Yeah, they run like a crime syndicate. It's great. It's so good. Like, I mean, their world is awful. They run it into the ground, but they are delightful. Kitty is the evil mastermind, and Ilyana is totally her treacherous vizier and court wizard. Who's the sorcerer supreme. I mean, she's wearing Doctor Strange's outfit. Which I bet she cut off of him. Probably true. And Doug has died and been resurrected, fully legally, and he is her conniving lawyer. And somewhere I really want there to be a universe where he and Spider-Gwen World's um, Matt Murdock, yeah, Murder Doc, have an evil multiversal law firm. I love everything about what you just said. Right? Oh, that would be beautiful. Oh, now, it would be the snarkiest series ever. So we don't get that, but we do get a pretty entertaining issue full of Judge Dredd stuff, so let's dive in. Yeah, oh yeah, it's got the triumvirate and a ton of Judge Dredd homage. Right. This, again, feels like the good part of the cross-time caper, which sort of supports the Alan Davis is the glue that holds this mess together. Yeah, so Ilyana is looking through her cauldron and realizing that, oh, hey, Excalibur from another world just showed up on ours. That's interesting. When the Justicers bust in and talk about how, you know, they're all guilty of all these various crimes. The Justicers are basically dread judges with goofier helmets, but they do effectively hide the top halves of their face. They're kind of like a cross between the Captain Britain uniform and the Judge Dredd uniform from 2000 AD. They're maybe halfway in between. Yeah, thereabouts. And they are waylaid by the snazzly sci-fi dressed Doug Ramsey, 
who assures them that his client has done nothing wrong. And Justicer Bull, the woman at the head of the Justicers and the most clear Judge Dredd analog, can't stand this dude. You should have stayed dead, Doug Ramsey. It was a legal resurrection, Justicer Bull, unlike this search. So charming. And just as things are about to get ugly because the Justicers don't really have much of a sense of humor, a giant Nazi train crashes through the entire building. Kitty gets knocked out a window and Excalibur sees her falling and assumes that she's, you know, just their Kitty or this universe's Kitty and doesn't know that she's you know, a supervillain and immediately goes to save her. But Captain Britain and Kitty are immediately shot by Justicer Bull and Megan is in even worse shape. No sooner does she go outside than she starts to die. She's being poisoned because the air in this world is so polluted. And so they all fall out of the tower. This is a very inauspicious start to their time on Earth, whatever the hell this is. Justicers immediately seize Kurt since he's visibly a mutant, and they try their best to take Alistair, Rachel, and the train. But Ilyana points out that the warrant was really just for Kitty. They've got no standing to get the rest. Alistair is immediately deeply grateful. I don't know how to thank you. But Ilyana, as she glares at the camera, with her fangs visible and one of her eyes on fire and the other opaque, demonically says, Trust me, Professor. I'll think of something. This panel is actually probably my favorite in the entire issue. She just looks so, like, deviously devilish. Alan Davis, again, ah, oh, he draws her so well. And she doesn't have swoopy hair. That's true. She's a rare Davis character without swoopy hair because well, she has her, her a bangs. representation of his wide range. You know, he can draw characters with and without swoopy hair and make both equally charming. So Alistair's really worried about Rachel because over the course of the cross time caper, she's been getting weaker and weaker. And apparently by this point, she's much weaker. She can barely move or even speak because every time they jump from dimension to dimension, it's her Phoenix energy that has to power a widget. And Ilyana sees an in. You yearn. You burn for the red. How's it that I give her to you? And she switches to wearing Rachel's costume, offering Alistair anything he wants in exchange for his knowledge and Rachel's power. And I don't know, I really love how just straight up evil almost every single universe's version of Ilyana Rasputin is, because for me, that makes it all the more meaningful that the Ilyana that we knew and loved before she got de-aged and, you know, eventually died, the one in Earth-616, that makes her resistance, her continuing attempts to be good, to not give in to that demonic taint within her, that makes them that much more meaningful. In this particular world, it also underlines the importance of Kitty's influence because, you know, Ilyana in 616 refers to Kitty a lot as one of her few real anchors to humanity, you know, one of the people who really understands her. And this is what you get when you take that anchor and turn it really unmitigatedly evil. Mm -hmm. You know, without good Kitty as her BFF, it's so much easier for Ilyana to go over that cliff. So Ilyana is being a demon of temptation toward Alistair. In the meantime, what about the folks that fell out of the tower, uh, out of the window of this whole crime lord headquarters thing? Well, they have fallen and fallen and fallen and landed in a sea of toxic waste. It's full of awesome sea monsters, but Captain Britain is able to fly the whole gang out to relative safety. Megan goes into an armored kind of reptilian form that allows her to effectively process the atmosphere Kitty is not so lucky. She is dying. And her last request is that Captain and Megan avenge her and get Ilyana. So they head off to, well, not necessarily do that, but at least to figure out what's going on with the rest of their friends. One of those friends, Nightcrawler, is on trial. He's been taken by the Justicers back to their headquarters. And they immediately find him guilty of being a mutant in the city. Your very existence is a violation of the law. A guilty verdict is merely a formality. 
After genetics modification to reconfigure you in conformity with established physiological norms and determine punitive stasis, you'll be returned to society to resume your life. Don't you understand? My life has nothing to do with your society. Irrelevant. It's worth noting that one of the people Nightcrawler fights, one of the Justicers, actually looks a lot like him and moves a lot like him, but is a normal baseline human. Yeah, it's unclear whether he just was that way in this universe or if he had actually gone through that procedure. Yeah, if this was another, this is a reconfigured Nightcrawler. But yeah, this whole thing, the being guilty of a crime just because of who you are, whether or not you intended anything, whether or not you even knew about it, gotta say, got some definite relevance. Well, considering that we're reading a comic that's riffing on 2000 AD, which is itself political satire of, at this point, Thatcher or immediately post-Thatcher UK, yes. <laughs> yes, that. I mean, X-Men's always been full of metaphors and always been full of commentary, throwing Judge Dredd in there even more. And Nightcrawler is thrown into jail with a bunch of obviously non-standard folks. We've got the Hulk, uh, the Fly from the movie, and... Megan, but specifically Megan as she was before she transformed into her more conventionally beautiful form. Megan with her awesome bat ears and fur. And man, I really love Monster Megan. And I want there to be a universe where she embraces that form and wears it voluntarily and is like, yeah, I know it's not the default form my body goes to, but it's the one I've grown up in. And I choose to resist your bullshit beauty standards because, damn it, I like being warm and having claws and it's useful and it's cool. And if you can't accept me like this world, then fuck you. I wish that, too. But in the case of this world, this Megan never learns to, you know, become her more conventionally attractive self because she never got self-confidence. She never got approval or love or any kind of nurturing or kindness and that never learned that she did have the ability to be anything other than something that was considered ugly. However, Nightcrawler is nice to her, so she is, unfortunately, completely doomed. Right, because as Kurt helps them escape, as he teleports out of his bonds and frees everyone, she says, This is madness. And Kurt replies, kissing her cheek, Sometimes the world needs a little madness. And they escape, except, like you said, she's doomed because she takes a bullet intended for Kurt and dies against him as they fly away. You showed me that... Oh, Nightcrawler, I'm all... Sparkly. I've never seen anything so beautiful. And she's in that conventionally beautiful human form again. And as she dies against his chest, she turns blue. And goddamn. She turns her... Nightcrawler blue, not like hypoxia blue. Well, yes. But goddamn. I mean, this version of the character that we've seen for like a total of six panels, I don't know. Like, I found myself incredibly emotionally attached to her. And this whole, like, oh, I just found out that I could be something more because you were an, actually a nice person as opposed to everyone being a jerk. Then her dying. I don't know. It hit me. I know it didn't affect you as much. I know it kind of bugged you, but it for me... It just makes me really sad that Megan's prize is always conventional attractiveness. I totally see where you're coming from with that. I agree that that's an unfortunate kind of uh, reinforcement of one specific type of beauty standards as being like, you know, the incarnation of female merit. That, and it also... I just, I don't know. I, I want there to be more variation. I want there to be Megans who are defined in other ways. I would like that too, but I mean... Because we really do get to see that with other characters, and we don't so much with her. Well, we do much, much, much later. There's time in Captain Britain and MI-13 where she becomes a character named Gloriana, and that goes in really interesting directions that I enjoyed. But you're right, I mean, for a while, this is kind of Megan's deal. Like, when she has approval, when she has love, that allows her to be in, you know, this confident form where she looks conventionally beautiful. And when she doesn't, she's all furry and bat-winged and stuff. I agree it's unfortunate, but like within that framework, I don't know. I found the scene really emotionally affecting personally. So Nightcrawler, now bereft of Megan, flies the escape ship 
up to the tower to Ilyana, who immediately takes him out. Right, and he's quickly followed by the Justicers, who were, of course, chasing the escaped prisoners, and they accuse her of hiding him and of doing various other sorts of crimes, and she's actually doing a good job of saying, hey, I'm not doing anything wrong, you can't see any prisoners here, you already took the only people you had jurisdiction over, get out of my tower. When Kitty shows up, Kitty suspiciously is alive, and even more suspiciously, she's wearing Excalibur Megan's costume. Hmm. And she storms in, accuses Ilyana of hiding Kurt, and also accuses Ilyana of trying to kill her and take over her criminal empire. And so Ilyana zaps Kitty, saying, well, it's her empire anyway, she helped build it, which is enough admission of guilt for the Justicers, who shoot the living hell out of her. In response to which Ilyana says, ain't that a crying shame, she says as she peels off her skin. Too bad for you, the Dark Child doesn't die quite like everybody else. And as she rips off her own skin, there's this giant purple horns demon underneath who attacks the hell out of everyone. Until Captain Britain shows up to stop her. And also the Lord High Justicer and the Chief Examining Magistrate, who are very clearly this world's version of Brian Braddock and Betsy Braddock, Captain Britain, and Psylocke, they come flying in? That's not supposed to happen in a world where superpowers are outlawed. Flying and using telepathy. Fortunately, their willingness to waive the laws of their world mean that they are able to team up with Excalibur to defeat and depower Ilyana. And so the Justicers, specifically Justicer Bull, say, well, okay, but the law is the law, and that means, Lord High Justicer and Chief Examining Magistrate, we get to arrest you. Alistair points out that by the letter of the law, the Justicers also count as super beings based on Bull's own definition, so extravagant costume, intimidating mask, parahuman abilities, and so forth. And thus, they would have to arrest themselves as well. And so Excalibur's just wondering, all right, I mean, the people who run this weird anti-power organization have powers themselves. What's the deal? And so the Lord High Justicer explains. Well, he established the Justicers after war between super beings almost destroyed the world. Obviously, now it's time for change. And fortunately, that kind of change will leave Justicer Bull with enough paperwork that Excalibur can just quietly disappear. And so that's this issue, and it's, I'm not going to say it's consequential, I'm not going to say we learn anything major about any of the characters, but goddamn, it's a fun one. No, what we learn is that we want to see the ongoing adventures of the crime family of Kitty, Doug, and Ilyana. Okay, yes, we definitely learned that. That's a valuable life lesson. So that leaves us with one more chapter of the Crosstime Caper. And boy, is it something. It's kind of great and kind of weird, and I don't know, let's just go for it. Her Wynus Omniversal Majestrix Opal Luna Saturnine is not amused, as an image of her projected into the train informs Excalibur. Because apparently Excalibur, in careening from parallel universe to parallel universe and doing all sorts of weird stuff there, is threatening the very concept of causality. And considering that Saturnine's predecessor obliterated an entire Earth for similar reasons, that's an issue. And of course she tells Excalibur that they need to come to the hub, you know, the center of reality where she works to get this resolved. And while they're at it, maybe they can resolve this Phoenix imbroglio, too. Well, shit. So, yeah, I mean, we'll get to what the deal is with Saturnine and Phoenix exactly in Excalibur number 42, which I believe is Alan Davis's first issue as a writer. So still a year and change out. But we do know that Saturnine was in fact responsible for the formation of Excalibur as a team because she was the one that hired TechNet to track down Phoenix in Excalibur, the sword is drawn. That's why all these characters are hanging out together in the first place, because of Saturnine's vendetta against Rachel Summers. So on one hand, Saturnine can probably send them back to their home reality, which would be great. 
On the other hand, Phoenix is coming into the hub as one of its most wanted criminals, which is somewhat less great. Right. I mean, you know, Saturnine has described her literally as a threat to reality, which when you're a lady, again, with the power to destroy realities or at least individual worlds to protect the rest, that's scary. To be fair, like two thirds of the characters who appear in Excalibur are threats to reality. (laughs) Possibly all of them, in fact, depending on how we count it. Yeah, that's reasonable. So Excalibur's clever solution to this Phoenix issue is to just dress Rachel up as Kitty. We're pulling a reverse of, in fact, Kitty's ploy early on in Excalibur when she disguised herself as Rachel to attract the attention of the werewolves. Now, as a reminder, Kitty Pride hasn't been with Excalibur this entire time in any of the stories that we've talked about in this episode because she is still stuck back in 616. We'll catch up with her later, but in the meantime, hey, at least some of her outfits are around for a somewhat ill-fitting disguise for Rachel. And once again, we've got Alan Davis, who's making it clear through the facial expressions and body language that, yeah, no, this is not really a passable disguise. And even the immigration inspector at the hub notices some differences between her and the canonical version of Kitty Pride. You're taller. I've grown. Your voice is deeper. I'm older. Your <clears throat> physiognomic er, configuration is... Uh... Different. It happens, okay? Give me a break. He also complains about how Captain Britain is wearing not only the wrong costume, but a costume from a different reality entirely. He's wearing Captain Marshall's outfit, and Megan's outfit is different as well. And he yells for the master artist archivist, who is apparently John Byrne in a Superman outfit. John Byrne at this point would have been what hard at work at the official handbook of the Marvel Universe, right? Right, where he had to catalog every single character from every single reality, basically, so, you know... And this is, I believe, his second appearance in the Crosstime Caper. Uh, yes, I think it is. I think you're absolutely right. He was on the big world where all the heroes and villains were fighting each other. The one that got blown up for being too silly. Exactly. And in fact, he and the immigration inspector get in a big brawl because John Byrne, which is to say not John Byrne, feels like having a task this monumental is entirely unrealistic because there are so many characters and they just keep changing, etc., etc. And it's kind of great. Excalibur makes their way to Saturnine, fighting through the avant-garde Lady London, Centurion, Britannus, Chevalier Breton, Captain Simru, and so forth. And all these fights and all these different versions of Captain Britain, plus also the avant-garde, they're all great, but we don't have forever, so we're just going to say it happens, and it's very well done, and this is an issue you should probably pick up. They think they are about to Saturnine until Widget telepathically yells for help back at the train. They immediately head back and discover that Saturnine is there. She's repaired Widget, and now he can take them wherever they want. Right. So, you know, this whole thing that's been sending them through time and space? Yeah, totally fixed now. It's fine. The resolution of the story is someone fixes Widget off-panel. It's a little more complicated than that, and Saturnine's motivation is perhaps a little more complicated because Rachel, still disguised as Kitty, points out that they need someone to power Widget, right? That's right. Phoenix had that role, didn't she? If she were here, I suppose I'd have to arrest her. It's my edict that condemns her. I could hardly ignore it. But then you'd probably all fight to the death to protect her, and there's really been enough excitement for one day. So I suppose it's fortunate for all concerned that she isn't here. As for the rest, well, I have faith. I'm sure you'll think of something. On one hand, this is charming. On the other hand, has the cross-time caper in fact been entirely pointless? And that's the thing. I mean... I don't know that the characters have really learned anything new about themselves. We still have the same pairs of love triangles that we had before. We still have the same psychological problems for all of our characters. And now they can just go back home. And so, yes, it was a fun romp. Yes, we've seen a ton of excellent worlds. But it almost feels like they're just going to be back where they started, aside from the fact that Kitty Pryde is no longer with the team. 
Now, the fact that it's resolved doesn't mean their troubles are over. They port back home and find themselves happy and safe in the 616 lighthouse, except for Galactus, who is now looming overhead. But we'll get to him later, because there's one set of scenes we haven't been talking about throughout these four issues, and those are where Kitty Pride has been on Earth-616 and what she's been up to. So, Kitty wakes up in Brian Braddock's old flat, which is where she's been staying, and she wakes up to Courtney Ross appearing with a birthday cake in hand. Now, Courtney Ross is Brian Braddock's ex-girlfriend. She's also, as we've learned in Excalibur, an alternate reality version of Majestic's Opaluna Saturnine. She's also, also, and please bear this in mind as we go through these scenes, been murdered and replaced by the fascist dictator Opal Loon Satire 9 from a different reality entirely. As far as we can tell, everyone involved in the creation of this book has completely forgotten that last part. Right, because she just acts like Courtney Ross the whole time. I mean, you know, she's a little creepy or imperious here or there, but like, I mean, so was Courtney Ross, so that's kind of okay. She's also apparently got Courtney's memories and nostalgia and, you know, knows where Brian keeps his key and all that. Actually, she has a key that he gave her way back when. And she's also apparently changed Kitty into a nightgown as she slept, setting the stage for what will be one of the least subtextual and most uncomfortable semi-seductions you'll see in this series. It's true, because it's a special day. It is Kitty Pride's 15th. 15th birthday. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I mentioned Courtney waking Kitty up with a cake in bed. That doesn't actually happen in the first scene. That happens when she shows up on Kitty's birthday. It's just tea and breakfast the first time. So she shows up with a cake. And this is a scene that I, I don't remember the precise quote, but I remember Alan Davis having said at some point, I believe on a message board, that when he read the script, he straight up read this scene as a not subtextual, but textual seduction scene and played it as such. You get stuff like Kitty licking icing off Courtney's fingers. Right. I mean, Courtney licks some icing off her own finger and then offers her hand to Kitty. And Kitty says that she doesn't know what she's going to do. You know, there's no point in celebrating her birthday. She can't even think of what she might consider, to which Courtney responds... Actually, I have a few ideas, if you're willing. Lead on, Courtney. I'm all yours, Kitty says as she licks the frosting off Courtney's fingers. I'm so glad. And they both smile. I mean, yeah, there is no subtlety to this whatsoever. Yeah, this is not subtext. You know, we've talked a lot about the subtextual thing. Like, I cannot imagine anyone reading this any other way. And I mean, you know, we're certainly totally fine with queer relationships and subtext and whatever in comics, and everything would be totally great and actually really hot, except, again, Kitty just turned 15. Uncool, uncool, uncool. And I'm going to go ahead and say now, because otherwise this is going to be, like, a description full of anticipation of awful. It doesn't go anywhere. This is the furthest it goes. And the role that Courtney sort of steps into from this point on is basically, you know, she describes herself as fairy godmother. And yeah, for me, that's what makes all of these scenes actually very, very charming. And Alan Davis's art makes it, of course, even more so. Well, charming to a point, because while Courtney doesn't actually escalate things, that introduction to this does kind of make the rest of it very much Rita's grooming. Like, on one hand, it's fun and it's cool. On the other hand, that slight tinge of uncomfortableness as an adult reader never quite goes away. Yeah, and as a kid, I definitely didn't catch that it was problematic. And part of that was, when you're a kid, the idea of younger people, you know, having sexual identities, like, that's just a thing. I mean, you know, you do, and these other teenagers do as well. 
And so thinking about some of the problematic aspects of it, some of the power issues going on there, that was just completely lost on me. Yeah, I mean, I feel like the argument about age of consent and what that means and what it represents ethically and legally and to what extent it's ethical, to what extent it's flexible in that context is a whole other thing. And I feel like it's something that I don't want to dive into here other than to say it is a nuanced and controversial issue. But this specific power dynamic and this specific age gap makes me deeply uncomfortable. Fair enough. But that said, let's talk about the rest of the stuff that happens, which, like you said, doesn't go anywhere other than the whole fairy godmother relationship. Right. Courtney takes Kitty shopping, basically decides that she is going to get to have a day of being as fancy and awesome as she wants. She takes Kitty out. She buys her a super fancy dress. They both get incredibly dressed up and head out to the best restaurant in London. Kitty is worried that she's going to be like Eliza in Pygmalion and My Fair Lady, that she's a total imposter among the upper class. And Courtney points out accurately, winning an argument with continuity, that Eliza doesn't get caught in the scene Kitty's referencing. And she ends up being, like, totally triumphant. And so they go for it, and inside the waiter asks Kitty what the ladies would like to drink, if they would like to sample some wine. And Kitty doesn't know a damn thing about wine, let alone fancy wine, let alone varieties of fancy wine. And, and Courtney ends up getting her to order Cristal by subtly pointing at her own earrings, which you know triggers some vague recognition or name from Kitty. And they're off. And the way Alan Davis draws this with Courtney first, you know, subtly touching the champagne glass as she rests her chin on her hands, then subtly touching her earring. Like, it's just perfect. I mean, the sort of half-amused smile that Courtney's giving Kitty during this and the look of pride on Kitty's face when the waiter doesn't know that Kitty is clueless. Oh, man. Like, for me, so many of the positive associations with otherwise problematic stuff is just like, oh, it's Alan Davis. Of course. Of course I love it. And of course I'm smiling. Yeah. We talked before about Alan Davis is often the line between uncomfortable and charming mm -hmm. in some of these scenes. I think we were actually talking about a different Courtney scene with the um, Alice in Wonderland stuff. Oh, right. Yeah in murder world at that point. But yeah, so Courtney basically tells Kitty, well, you know, the night is young. I'll tell you what, you've got the whole night. Where have you always wanted to go? And so the next time we see them, uh, Courtney has hired a private jet and they are off to Paris. As Courtney says, it's only money. There they hobnob with musicians and philosophers and scientists at a club and Kitty gets to dance until dawn. And the next morning they return home and Kitty finds Courtney waiting with Kitty's gift a jaguar for a shadow cat. It's going to be torture waiting to grow old enough to drive it. This from a girl who's piloted aircraft at Mach 5 and been to the far side of creation. Just because I know how doesn't make me legal. So don't make a mistake. I don't have a license. That only matters if you get caught. That's breaking the rules. Some are born to play by the rules, Kitty. Others, though, they're born to make them. Would those others include the evil fascist dictators of crypto-Nazi dystopias who have murdered their 616 counterparts and taken over their lives in order to give 15-year-olds a dream night on the town? Okay, so I think you could maybe look at this like Courtney is Satire 9, and Satire 9 is trying to very gradually corrupt Kitty. Yeah, totally. That's believable. Yeah, I guess that's happening. But again, it reads so charming because of Alan Davis's art. It's like, Oh, the horrible fascist is trying to corrupt our hero, and it's adorable. Yeah, and the thing is, she doesn't really continue with it. Like, the next thing she's going to do with Kitty is send her off to boarding school. It's so strange. Like, the early 90s are full of so many goddamn dropped plot threads, and you really just have to go with it. You have to say, okay, I know this didn't go anywhere, but these scenes are fun, and therefore they have inherent merit, even if they're never followed up on. Speaking of dropped plot threads, you've got questions. An anonymous listener wrote in to ask on Tumblr, how can Nightcrawler grow a beard if he's already covered in fur? 
Okay, as a somewhat furry person with a beard, I will say, like all mammals, Nightcrawler's hair grows at different concentrations, lengths, and textures on different parts of his body. Seems pretty straightforward, yeah. I mean, God, if all of my body hair grew at the same length and rate as my beard, I'd be one fuzzy dude. I mean, like, more of a fuzzy dude. I'd look like Mole from that X-Factor episode we did last time. And if you're looking for examples of this on species that tend to be furrier than humans, I mean, look at any given lemur. Uh, look at lions and the different concentrations of hair and length and the fact that they've got manes. All that stuff. It's only somewhat related, but I would like to point out at this point that there's a heavy metal song called Dogs Have Beards All Over Their Entire Body. And that makes me happy every time I think about it. And maybe it has made you happy. So there you go. I think it's in Rock Band. It totally is. You can play it in Rock Band. Okay. Hatching Phoenix asks on Tumblr, I have a question about the Siege Courageous. I know that the Siege Perilous was made by either Roma or Merlin, and it let the X-Men get new destinies. In Avengers vs. X-Men, the Phoenix Five used the Siege Courageous to get around. Was this Siege also made by Roma? Are there other Sieges besides the two? Okay, for those of you unfamiliar with the Siege Courageous, it's basically a teleporter. You can jump in one place, pop out somewhere else, and unlike the Siege Perilous, your identity and memory remain intact. Good times. The origins of the Siege Courageous, or rather, Siege's Courageous, since we've seen at least two, have yet to be explored in the comics. Its aesthetics point to terrestrial or at least technological rather than magical origins. On the other hand, one of the two that's shown up, um, which was in Secret Wars, showed up in Doctor Strange's Sanctum, so who the hell even knows? The Siege Courageous remains largely unexplored. So we are an entirely listener-supported podcast. Uh, we are here thanks to the fine folks on Patreon, and some of those tiers of support come with acknowledgement on the show from a number of fictional characters and entities. Today, I believe I am turning the mic over to Sexy Nightcrawler. Is this madness? Sometimes the world needs a little madness. Andrew Hill and Peter Brax, your uniforms may be what's visible at first glance, but your passionate hearts shine through, blazing phoenix bright. More fool any you can't see. But what better way to bring sight to those heart-blind than with the flourish of a rapier, the flash of a smile, the kiss of a hand, and then, still dazzled with romance, the bamf of a parting wink. Leave them wanting more, mine friends. Leave them wanting more. Jay and Miles explain the X-Men is recorded in Portland, Oregon, and produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, Kaiju Cast. New episodes of our show come out Sundays on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and at explainthexmen.com. Check out explainthexmen.com for all kinds of extra content, visual companions to every episode, along with interviews, fan art, recaps, reviews, and more. Our show is 100% listener-supported. If you want to help us stay on the air and ad-free, check out the Patreon link at the top of explainthexmen.com. Next week, grab your mittens, polish your monocle, and prepare for an eclectic smorgasbord of seasonal tomfoolery. It's winter special time. 